Hi everyone, Lucas Werner here. If you've been enjoying these conversations about art and culture, you might want to check out the newest releases from David's Werner Books, where we've published award-winning titles on Diane Arbus, Yayoi Kusama, and Carrie James Marshall, in addition to Ekphrasis, the critically acclaimed series of texts on art. This season, look out for books from the likes of Catherine Bernhardt, Noah Davis, and Marcel Zama, as well as new additions to the beloved Ekphrasis series. Visit davidswernerbooks.com to learn more. From David's Werner, this is Dialogues, a podcast about artists and the way they think. So these things would come to me intuitively. I didn't analyze, I didn't work out some like political uh, rationale for what I was doing. I wasn't promoting a cause. I wasn't do- on a crusade. I just kind of, the thing would just come out intuitively and I can't explain it. An illustration was one step up from comics. And if you're, if you're climbing the ladder, tattoos or, uh, tattoo artists were at the bottom and abstract painters were at the top of whatever hierarchy I understood to exist. Yeah. I'm Lucas Werner, and every episode features a conversation. We're taking artists, writers, philosophers, designers, and musicians and putting them in conversation with each other to explore what it means to make things today. This week's pairing, the cartoonist R. Crumb and the cartoonist Art Spiegelman. It's really special to have these two major figures of the comics world together on the podcast because they also happen to be old friends. Crumb is one of the founding fathers of the alternative comics movement And Spiegelman is equally influential, having authored the Pulitzer Prize-winning graphic novel, Mouse. Robert and Art, thank you so much for being here today. It's so great to have you both in the studio here. My pleasure. Pleasure. So I thought we would start by going back a little bit and hearing a bit of the backstory uh, behind both of your careers. Robert, how did you first get into the work that you do, the comics that you do, and maybe talk a little bit about what you do for people who might not be familiar with it? I draw comics and I and drawings. I make drawings mostly. I do a painting once in a while, but I grew up on comics. I was a child of popular culture, lower middle class background. And then I had this older brother who was a fanatic about funny animal comics in the 50s, Disney and, you know, Bugs Bunny and stuff. So he just... He was always drawing comics and thinking of comic stories, and he made me do it. I was a year and a half younger than him, and he was very extremely charismatic and domineering, and I just had to do it. So he just, he just employed you, basically. Yeah, yeah. And he said, "Oh, you're not your Bravo the Panda comic is not ready for for the February uh, you know dead deadline. What you know? Come on, get on it." <laughs> but at that point, it was just for you. It wasn't for a bigger audience. I mean, were you making them? No, they were just for us. We were just pretending to be, you know, published and everything. We had the Animal Town Publishing Company. And my brother, of course, was president of the company. <laughs> what, what were you? Did you have a title? I was the vice president. And my younger brother, Max, and he was the supply boy because he couldn't draw. <laughs> and how old were you when it started the Animal? Animal Town Animal Publishing Town Company. Post. I was about nine, maybe eight or nine. If it wasn't for him, I'm sure I probably would not have ended up drawing comics for a, a life's work. I don't know what I would have done, a postal clerk or something. I don't know. <laughs> Supply boy. <laughs> and Art, did you have, I mean, did you start early as well? Very early. I can't quite remember exactly when, but uh, I, I was attracted to comics. 
And my mother would play this game with me of like making a scribble on a piece of paper and I'd have to turn it into something. So as a result, I never learned how to draw. I just learned how to like hallucinate onto scribbles and <laughs> make them, bring them into focus. But I, I've been, had a life in comics as well. Uh, and I guess the main catalyst where I knew I was doomed was something that happened to Robert as well, which was Mad Comics. Like there's a paperback that came out when I was seven years old, and uh, it was called, I think, Inside Mad. <clears throat> and it had little covers of comics that I thought were just made up, but then I found out there it was an anthology of older books. And there's a one-inch high picture of this creature, this horrid strangely made of turds woman's face kind of cross-hatched very carefully the first time you saw it was on the cover of the inside that big, man yeah, yeah that big and it was like I from remember. across the room and it was like oh, oh i remember God. that cover yeah that was a powerful cover it was, it was like it changed my life you know because I, I wouldn't leave the store without it i was like <laughs> seven years old wow um the yeah. attitude of it was like nothing i ever got before so yeah. You know, I began to think that like MAD was an acronym for mom and to dad because I couldn't trust them. <laughs> uh, uh, but hmm. I could trust what I was reading in MAD because it was telling me that everybody was lying to me, including them. <laughs> and so I began copying it and stuff. Unfortunately, maybe I didn't have an older brother who made me work really hard or get beaten up. So as a result, I'm much less productive and, and <laughs> <laughs> not as compulsively a drawer as Robert. But I just love that comics language, and I've been doing it ever since. I remember seeing, actually, that that very same cover when it originally came out in the newsstands, the issue of Mad Number no. 11 with the Basil Wolverton cover. And, it, yeah, it was an eye-opening experience. Exactly what you said. It, suddenly you realized that, wow. This, this was to put a big crack in reality, you know. It's in the 1950s context of magazines, TV was coming on strong, but magazines and comic books were still a very strong, powerful medium, which, I mean, you can't imagine the prestige of Life magazine. It was huge. People, everybody looked at it, and it was powerful. So here's this comic book that looks just like a Life magazine cover, the red square with the top, but it says mad in the title, not life, and this grotesque drawing that says something like a beauty contest or something that was supposed to be by this mad artist, Basil Wolverton, who just did the grossest looking, you know. After the kind of like being whipped, whipped into work by your brother. Yeah. <laughs> at what point does, does making comics become kind of a profession, as it were? Or at what point do you mean to think All of right. it as something that you're okay. going to do? Well, by the time I was 17 years old, I realized I'm such a, weirdo, nerd, social outcast, loser. This is all I have. Only thing I got going, I could barely tie my shoes, but I can I can draw pretty well and I like comics. So, you know, I had this idea, I'll try and, uh, you know, become a commercial artist of some kind. I don't know, I had this idea of myself as being like a, a successful commercial artist in New York and I would change my name. My middle name is Dennis, so I was going to call myself Bob Dennis. <laughs> <laughs> See, I did something similar. When I found out that Al Cap's real name was Kaplan and that he was Jewish, yeah. I went, Art Speg. That's the future. <laughs> They'll never know. <laughs> Say that again. Art Speg. S-P-E-G. Because it was a one-syllable name. It didn't have the I-E, which would... Speg. It didn't it lasted for exactly one strip. It doesn't, doesn't have very good ring to no, it. No, it's not I, right. For me, like... Uh, the professional part of it happened real early because it, it seemed to me that being a cartoonist meant being printed. It wasn't enough to just make a drawing 
uh, yeah. and have it. So sure. very early on, I started a terrible, really a crud zine, they call them. A very crud bad fanzine. I remember that term, crud <laughs> a, a very bad fanzine <laughs> that I was doing when I was 14 and 15 called mm. Blase, which was going to be like, mm. a, I thought, like a sophisticated, mad-like title. <laughs> Collector's uh, item now. Yeah, 40 or 50 copies only. But, right. um, but the thing was that... From there, I, like I started drawing for the junior high school newspaper, and then yeah. I had a big break that changed my life. Oh, here's a, a good story. Like I, I wanted to get professional work. I was really a rat, much worse than I am now because I've had years of practice. But at the time, I had a portfolio. I went up to the local weekly Queens, Lefrak City newspaper called uh, the Long Island uh, Post. I, I showed them the portfolio, and then much to my humiliation, they ran an article called Budding Artist Wants Attention. <laughs> but they did print one of my drawings, you know? So two years later, I went back and I got a job from them, you know? All right, but then I guess the question, the, the follow-up question is, what was the underground world like? As it, Because that is really where you guys were both... At, okay. If not, if not embedded, interested, and free yeah. to make work. Well, once the hippie culture blossomed out, they just started putting out all these underground newspapers, and they would print anything. They'd print any junk anybody gave them. So it was wide open. So it took your comics, and they're, oh yeah, sure, I'll print it. Well, you know, and, and hardly anybody was drawing like hippie comics yet. There was only a couple people. Actually, it was wide open. And then the comics that that I did in the underground papers. People liked him, so then a guy said, "Hey, do a whole comic book." It's like, "Wow, really?" He said, "Yeah, we'll print the whole comic book." That was, you know, a thrilling moment for me. That was '67. Yeah, that's. A, I think I met you around then, like '67 or '68. Yeah, '68. Yeah. And, uh, but to back up for a second, for me, what happened was I got offered a syndicated comic strip while I was still in high school. You did? Yeah. Holy Toledo. Uh, I, was, I went to what? a special commercial art high school in the well, city called see, the thing Art is, he, and Design. He was in, in the middle was in of New, New York. York. Right. Yeah, yeah, I were. was from Podunk. I, you know, <laughs> I didn't have these kind of opportunities at so all. So I just, you know, I, uh, what happened was in the cartooning class, which is the only high school in America that had a cartooning class, Jesus. it was a 1930s style vocational school to learn the commercial arts, you know, not like the la-di-da music and art high school that taught painting. <laughs> Beaux-Arts, right. Yeah. Uh, this was the Bozo arts. <laughs> uh, but in any case, some ex-graduate who was a syndicate editor came to see the comic strips we, do, we were doing, and he said, this is really good. Could you do two more weeks and bring them up to see me? I'll groom you for syndication. When I worked at the greeting card company, half the guys drawing these crummy greeting cards had dreams of doing a syndicated yeah, comic Yeah, and I did too until I got the offer, and then I couldn't do a, two weeks. I was going, if I have to do this for the rest of my life, I'll kill myself now, you know? Uh, so, so what did you I sit around trying to invent a character? No, I had the characters. They liked what I did. It what for were the, the characters? The Mad Hatter and a Talking Termite and a, an Inkblot. Okay, imagine doing a Talking Termite for 30 oh, years. I did. <laughs> I never got past like about the eighth strip, you know? It was useful to me because it made me know what kind of cartoonist I didn't want to be. And right. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I, I could have yeah. been okay with gag cartooning or something like that, right. maybe. Right. Yeah. But, um, but as a result, like my my work, even while I was still in high school, started getting a lot stranger. There wasn't a word like underground comics in 1965. No. But after I graduated, there was an underground newspaper for the first time. The East Village Other had just yeah. started. Yeah. And I went up to see this guy, Walter Boart, who's yeah. the editor. Right. Showed him my work and he said, oh, this is good. Could you do stuff with more sex and drugs in it? But for me, it was like sex and drugs. I knew nothing. I knew a lot about comics history, <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't know anything about sex and drugs. So I had to go to college to learn that and came back a year later and started working for them. When did you first take LSD? 
must have been 67. When did it get made illegal? 66 or 66. Yeah, so 67. I first took it in 65, and, you know, that was a huge uh, breakthrough and psychedelic uh, inspiration for comics. And it was a breakthrough for you personally or no? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, huge, yeah. In what way? Just suddenly I was able to step outside of reality and see it differently, you know. Changed your drawing enormously. It did, yeah. yeah. Wow. And like, in fact, I only knew Robert's earlier style of drawing when I met him in, I guess you said 68, was that it? When when I met you, yeah. Yeah. Like I was out in San Francisco. Because Robert had worked for Woody Gelman, as I had, I looked him up. And at that time, I was already making very surreal comics for my college paper. I had no idea what to do with all this. And then when I saw... Robert's work, he explained that his work had changed and had. I yeah. looked at it and it had a lot more to do with Basil Wolverton and knobby knees and uh, yeah, bare old, light bulbs. Older style of cartooning, yeah. Cross-hatching, which of yeah. a kind that was like totally repressed in that less is more post-Bauhaus cartoon moment. All of a sudden, it was a scritchy, scratchy, strange, beautifully drawn to me stuff. And the content wasn't like necessarily about punchlines or anything. And when I saw it, I was kind of exhilarated. I was still taking drugs at that point. And I decided there's no room for me to become the cartoonist who will change the world. That's Robert's job now. So I'm going to go and become the Buddha. There's a certain moment, I don't know what year it would be, where Robert's work affected every cartoonist, even like like even like somebody like Saul Steinberg. All of a sudden, he's drawing big-legged women as part of his abstracted cartoon art. And it was across the board. But then sort of the two questions I would have is, were you aware that that was happening at a certain point? Like, at what point did it become clear that something had happened to you which was affecting a it group happened, of peers? It happened pretty fast. happened pretty fast. Like, uh, I know, published Zap Comics first time in the early 68. By the end of 68, yeah, I was aware that it was a big Oh, other comics splash. were happening because of Zap. You know? Right. So just the cartoonists of, the, of that generation, were, we were all there. And then the, 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 the question that's maybe harder to answer is, I'm not sure I understand the connection between the psychedelics and the stylistic change, if that makes sense. That's, that's a whole other discussion. <laughs> it's complicated, <laughs> complicated. I would call it the return of the repressed. Hmm. You know, hmm. like, that style couldn't have been in further eclipse. Like, the height of cartooning would be, on the one hand, if you're, well, somewhere between Charles Schultz and well, there was Jules, uh, Pfeiffer. Jules Pfeiffer. It was minimal style of, of uh, comics that were appearing in, you know, adult stuff and then there's the superhero stuff the jack kirby approach right. and that's about it really at that right. time so i took lsd and this one crazy weird bad lsd trip i had where i just got completely uh pulled back down this vortex into this like 1930s murky world of of popular cartoon styles and and the lettering styles and everything from this older time and how aware were, were each of you like of of the art world as an entity, as as a separate world that exists. I mean, was that even remotely on the radar? Now that we are at this point where you, Robert, are showing in a mainstream art gallery you to know, your chagrin. I, I, <laughs> I tell people I was in New York in '66. They said, "Oh, you must have hung around the factory with Andy Warhol." I had nothing to do with that um, world. I lost my first girl. I lost my high school girlfriend to the factory. <laughs> oh, geez, that's sad. Oh, yeah. <laughs> But I was aware of it. I wasn't that interested in it. Like, I was kind of a slob snob. Like, if it wasn't on newsprint, the hell with it. <laughs> I mean, what's interesting is we talked a little about the stylistic change, but how about the subject matter? I mean, how did each of you come to the subject matter that ended up sort of defining? I mean, in your case, Robert, we would say 
let's say, erotic subject matter to, to make it, I mean, it's a little bit a uh, blanket statement, as it were, but... Well, I, when I was young, I was just, you know, had a, a high level of sexual obsession, and I just couldn't keep it out of the work. I just couldn't help it. And I was quirky and weird and crazy and full of, you know, uh, neurotic anger and angst and shit. So it all just poured out. Once I saw S. Clay Wilson's work, I said, oh, I'm just going to... Let it all out. I'm not going to hold anything back anymore. And for me, I first had to work through some bad influences like Crump to figure out where <laughs> I was going. Yeah, I remember that period of your work. It was kind of weird. It was kind of weird. I just like was, oh, okay, you got to do sex stuff. Or, yeah. or um, I could tell it was kind of forced for you. It you wasn't natural. No. I didn't know where to hit it no. from, you know. Right. But there was mm-hmm. like an influence on, I think, both Robert and me. And one of the gang of underground cartoonists named Justin Green was doing clearly – Neurotic, bordering on psychotic, uh, uh, confessional comics. Extremely personal. Very personal. Oh, and yeah. it was like autobiographical, slightly shifted just so they could get stranger. It was like really like looking at something you're not allowed to see, the inside of somebody's brain. You know? Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And that steered me toward what uh, became the work I ultimately got known for. You know, things that were just much more personal. But I still have like a, an interest in being a communicator, an entertainer of some kind. And, yeah, sure. And it's mixed with that. Sure, you know? yeah, that's right. It's mixed together. It's hard to s- separate the, mm-hmm. the deeply personal thing you want to do with it and the, the earlier training to be entertaining and readable. Mm-hmm. It's not like you're like the abstract expressionist art, which is, you know, the, the artist is really at a distance from the viewer. So the viewer well, has to has to figure out what the hell's going on there. You know, it's not like that. It's, what it is is for me, it's like when I got to know some people who are like, Painters and those kind of non-narrative filmmakers, they – anytime I'd use the word communication, it was as if I'd farted in the room, <laughs> you know, because uh, communicating is commercial art. The, com- the communication arts, which became a euphemism for advertising or something, but ultimately that – notion that you're supposed to be in, in touch with the reader. I never met a writer who gave me a problem with the word communication, but painters and fine artists mm, like think it's more like you are the shaman and you put out your entrails and it's somebody else's job to figure out why they're there. Right, right. And that's not the tradition that either Robert or I come from. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's a tension also between the tradition between a narrative art and a non-narrative art. I mean, you know, the car- cartooning is ultimately a narrative art. Narrative became like, you know, a... a a mortal sin in, in, in the world of painting. Exactly. Oh, it's narrative. It's no good. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Or me, that's mere illustration. Mm-hmm. That's no right. good. But and illustration was one step up from comics. And right. If you're, if you're climbing the ladder, tattoos or uh, tattoo artists were at the bottom, and abstract painters were at the top of whatever hierarchy. <laughs> I am. The visual it's, it's, arts, right? Yeah. That hierarchy is sort of broken down somewhat, yes. but people, I'm sure in the fine art world, are afraid of the hierarchy breaking down because then they, nice. the, the value structure, the price structure is going to break down because, you know, if if uh, a nice, skillfully done portrait of somebody is as, as valuable as a Cy Twombly, then everything loses its, you know— its sense of value. How has the in your in your case in particular, Robert, the subject matter, the reception of the subject matter changed? So we are both, weirdly enough, in a moment that is hyper accepting of a variety of different styles, let's say, within visual art. Yeah. But much more, I think, uh much more cordoned off or much more unwilling to accept things that transgress certain boundaries, so right? You're now talking about political correctness. Yes, effectively. Yeah. But I'm curious first, what did it feel like when you were first making 
the same cartoons that we are looking at now, let's yeah. say. Yeah. But what 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 was the response? Did people take it? Was there more humor? Were people to laugh it off more, or was no. it still no? Mm-mm. Really? No. Wow. I, I, it was ah. immediately condemned by many women. Immediately that when I started opening up all my crazy sex fantasy stuff. Immediately, because it was also the beginning of the rise of feminism, though the first wave of feminism. But there was a wide, uh, voracious audience for your comics. In the all 60s. boys. There was very I met, few I met, girls. I met very girls who few. liked it. You did, huh? Yeah. All, all the, the the girls that I started to be successful with after I got famous. Before I was famous, I was a complete loser with girls. But after I got famous, these girls were interested in me because I was famous. It had nothing to do with the work. When What was the tipping point? This is sort of apropos nothing. What, what, when you say, when I became famous, yes. what is the moment you're thinking of? The late 1968. It okay. happened very quickly. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, it was, I was in a different world than I'd been in before. And what exactly, What can you pinpoint? Was it just this stylistic shift we talked about, or is it something, was there a specific... Well, the Zap Comics caught Zap on, comics, yeah. and it started getting written up, and you know, got written up in Playboy and other places. Now, and, that's the thing. A world that had Playboy in it, when it was showing naked lady centerfolds, is it was kind of... Uh, norm, the normative one, not the avant-garde feminist world that was beginning to permeate. And so in that kind of twilight moment, as one was receding and one was uh, ascending, I think Robert's work was widely embraced, maybe mostly by men, but I, it wasn't oh, yeah. limited to that. At that time, like in the 68 or so, like if you wanted to be cool, you had to have some underground comics in yeah, your house. Yeah, college, needed a college kids had... had- Right. Underground comics next yeah, next to their dope pipe. Yeah. And and the art world just seemed very remote. You know? Right. And now the art world cool is all Roberts. At this point, it works fine. But the general world, like there's been a, a, a very intense generational divide that's made itself felt just in the last several years. Well, I would yeah. say under 30, they find mm-hmm. that work repulsive. You said the other day, under 25, anybody under 25, they got to throw away their crumb comics. Well, yeah, you know, <laughs> it comes from probably good intentions of wanting to change the world, which I wanted yeah. to do in my 20s sure, as well. Sure. But it has a kind of side to it that feels very uh, Jacobean, you know, yes. like the, the uh, off with his head. Yeah, roll the head. <laughs> well, yeah, I think what's happened is something that we can't really know too much about because we're too old. Is well, that, fortunately, I have a daughter who's like, you know, hmm, right on the cutting Nadja. edge of all this stuff. Yeah, yeah Nadja, like, you, understands you, it and tries to explain it to me. I just am? goes, oh, oh, Dad. It sensitized me to it. Like, I'm not just dismissive of it. I'm just trying to figure out how yeah. can I reconcile it yeah. with my needs to work, you know? Yeah, I, I'm not dismissive either, but it, I you have to really understand that in their world, the, the 20-somethings, that this... All these gender differentiations has become very, very important. Part of the one of the most delicate things to maintain or to discuss in any piece of art is the context in which it's received or the context it yeah. makes for itself. Yeah. And if you're unable to control that, which you can't as time passes, then of course it feels to me like everything that is satirical now in the wrong way is being taken as completely well, flat and literal. I, mean, I, I work intuitively, or I did. Uh, I don't, it's all in the past at this point, but. You know, these things would come to me intuitively. I didn't analyze. I didn't work out some, like, political uh, rationale for what I was doing. I wasn't promoting a cause. I wasn't uh, uh, on a crusade. I just kind of, this thing would just come out intuitively. And I can't explain it. There's a faction of this stuff that's happening now that is so completely humorless 
That's what I mean. And I'm frightened by it. You <laughs> they, know, like to to they're to humor misquote, impaired, right? Yeah, to misquote Emma Goldman. If I can't laugh, you can keep your fucking revolution. You know, like uh, <laughs> I think you said dance. But uh, yeah, well, if I can't dance. <laughs> I, I don't want to be part of your revolution, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but it makes it very hard to be interested in being amusing because <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's funny. <laughs> amusing for you know uh and yeah, and yeah. um it makes it very hard to deal with what's in your head because you're asked to repress a lot of it self-censorship well, is is difficult to you, you can't well art is supposed there. to be a place where you can do that yeah. you know where you can let these thoughts out and it's not you know unless you're like uh lying and deceiving people it's it's anything should be allowed you know the point is obviously not that the stories that in, the whole thing is that the the great benefit the world is probably a better place certainly a better place that actually people of a varying people have had to repress themselves and their identities for centuries thousands of years are now actually able to express some of those things and be accepted the question is how do you still have multiple conversations happening at once where not everybody is being is being required to yeah, present that, the same that party intersectionality line. stuff you know like whatever you're doing in one direction is going to hurt from another right. direction and cartooning is built on stereotype basically that's well the that's language actually really it. interesting too yeah it's just built on it you know and like i managed to escape it by falling into doing that mouse work where all of a sudden everybody's just wearing masks and their identity is defined by their mask and it does have to do with victim culture in a very deep way because the victimization of uh, Auschwitz is hard to contest, except on the absolutely lunatic L- lunatic fringe. fringe. Come yeah, on, exactly. didn't you get flack from the Polish people for Polish portraying people, them did. as pigs? Yeah, and I did try to <laughs> oh, explain. Wow. I did try to explain very, very often. In fact, you know, uh, very often. And it, and, and really, book, yeah, often. And, and, yeah, wow. and the you know, when I go into public, it would happen. I would have the conversation. Yeah. You know, the book is available in Poland, and now finally it's sold above ground. <laughs> Used to yeah. be, I couldn't even get it um, shown in bookstores. Really? You know? wow. wow. There was a change. The way underground comics made a change. I think Mouse had the biggest effect. Although there was Watchmen and Dark Knight and a couple of other things, where all of a sudden in '86 there were all these articles saying Bim Bath Pow right. comics, comics aren't are not- for children anymore. Right. Um, right. Um, yeah. And the thing that changed. It, I think, was if you can take on the enormity of Auschwitz in a comic and not be totally stupid. What was your interest, let's put it this way, we've talked about the stylistic things, Robert, but what was your interest in stories? Like, how did you become interested in stories? What stories made an impression on you? Comic books, Carl Barks, Donald Duck, the first stories I was able to get into, because I was kind of dyslexic and I had trouble reading text. I couldn't read anything with a lot of text. I just couldn't. It's too hard. So comic books and there were great stories. Again, it goes back to my brother though. He was the story guy. I was in, more interested in the visual aspect of of art originally, but I just had to do stories. I was you know, I was made to do to write and create stories. But as you went on and on, I feel like you you embraced yeah. con- more and more embraced certainly that kind of personal. Right. I mean, you kind of turned your life and and maybe Aileen was was your your wife Aileen was a sort of help in going down that personal path as it were yeah she did i she, seeing her work in justin green kind of like i kind of bent more towards personal autobiography but i know storytelling i i kind of forced myself to become a well, storyteller storytelling isn't as hard as stories that are worth telling you right. know like uh like i actually was always enamored of the words and pictures in combination 
but I just like looking at it. So even comics I hate, I sort of get interested in. Because, yeah, because of visual aspect. Yeah. Sure, yeah, me and, too. And it needs the language, for, usually. I mean, there's silent comics, of course, but then the words are just transmuted into symbol pictures. Um, some cartoons yeah. are more literary and some are more visual. And there's rare ones that are both, right. that like Karl Barks, both yeah. literary and visual. I find it easier to write than to draw. Yeah, you're a literary cartoonist. Yeah. Yeah. You find it more easier to write than to draw. Yeah, yeah. To, but to write comics. I mean, I can write prose, but not fiction. I don't think I have any interest wow. in that. But, I, right. but I, I write essays as well as I can. Mm -hmm. right. you know, and I think sometimes I'm proud of a sentence or right. a paragraph or a thought. Yeah. And you would say you find it much easier to draw than to write. Not anymore. Now I've, re <laughs> I've really be become much more of a writer, actually. I mean, when I looked at the most recent art and beauty, let's say, that the, the most, I mean, besides Genesis, of course, but yeah. recent body of work that, that was up in London, that was very much, you know, there were these long paragraphs that would right. be copied Those in. Those aren't comics at all. It's no. just drawings with text. For decades and decades and decades, like uh, Robert's been writing a diary, writes his dreams down. Um, and so it's mostly text. I mean, this, yeah. I, yeah. rather than images of the dream yeah. or something. That, that book that came out of my dream diaries, people were very disappointed because there's not more drawings. Mm -hmm. If you weren't, if you hadn't become a cartoonist, I mean, you jokingly said postal clerk, Robert, but yeah. what yeah. else could you have imagined doing? And then I'll ask you the same thing, Art. Criminal. <laughs> <laughs> Shoe salesman. I don't know. I have no idea. No, I think I would probably have trained myself more to be a writer because I, I read a lot and I like, I, I like language. Uh, and it's harder for me to draw, but I, the best way to express myself is to use whatever I have from both sides of it. Um, and as an illustrator, I could make a living when they had illustrators, but I, I wasn't that good. I mean, but you taught for a while too, right? Oh yeah, yeah. So I could have been a teacher. I could have been a teacher, but I, I think I could have been a writer. You and like, I could have like probably taught. You could have been a teacher. Okay, lecturer, lecturer. There we yeah. go. Well, Robert and Art, thank you so much for talking today. This was great. Well, talk is cheap. So is art unless you get lucky. <laughs> That's right. Dialogues is produced by David Zwerner. You can find out more about the artists on this series by going to davidswerner.com slash dialogues. And if you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does help other people discover the show. I'm Lucas Werner. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you join us again next time.